This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa, and you can find us on 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondina with Onelentinte Wisone Matebula and Tawisondima. Get up stories. A new law signed by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi could be a death sentence for human rights groups operating in the North African country. Angolan President Jose Eduardo Toshandos, who has been docked by reports of poor health, has returned back home after nearly a month in Spain. And a report has been released which points out to abuses against journalists in Kenya reporting on sensitive issues. In business news, Kenya has launched a cargo train service along the Chinese-funded Standard Gorge Railway. And in sports, the Cecil-sponsored Banyana Banyana are in an ongoing training camp that started on the 28th of May and will end on the 1st of June. Here's Onelensinsi. Thank you, Spoo. Four police officers have been killed when their vehicle hit a roadside bomb in southeastern Kenya. This a week after 14 others died in similar attacks claimed by al-Shabaab Islamists. Police warn that more attacks are likely during the holy month of Ramadan to happen since 2007. Al-Shabaab has fought to overthrow successive internationally backed government in Somalia but began attacking Kenya in 2011 after Nairobi ordered its troops into Somalia to fight the militants. Kenyan soldiers are now part of a 22,000 member African Union mission fighting in the country. Lesotho's Independent Electoral Commission says it is ready to deliver credible elections. The IEC has delivered its readiness statement ahead of the June 3rd poll. 1.2 million voters, 60% of them between the age of 18 and 39, will cast their ballots in nearly 3,000 voting stations. All voting materials have also been delivered to hard-to-reach areas, and urban areas will be delivered between now and Saturday. IEC Chairperson, Judge Mahabela Luhosha. We as the Commission are satisfied that we have prepared the holding of these elections in a transparent and all-inclusive manner and are ready to deliver credible elections. Angolan President Jose Eduardo de Santos has been dodged by reports of poor health, has, who's been adorched by reports of poor health has returned back home after nearly a month in Spain. Angolan authorities confirmed for the first time on Monday that De Santos, who has been the country's leader for the last 38 years, was in Spain for medical reasons. United spokesperson outside Sakala says his party welcomes the president's return, but he has also called on the Angolan government to be more transparent about his health. 
Well, uh, it's true that uh, the president uh, is back home. There was a lot of rumor, you know, uh, during his stay in Barcelona in Spain, more negative than positive. At that time, uh, we have said that uh, uh, it is important so that the, the Angolans know what was going on. Since he is the president of the country, I think Angolans must know uh, what was happening at that time with the president. Uh, lately, uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Mr. Chicotti, Mr. Chicotti, uh, has said recently, uh, I think two days before his arrival uh, in Luanda, the arrival of the president in Luanda, he said that the, med- the, the president was uh, in Spain for medical treatment. So he had confirmed indeed that the president was sick and in treatment in, uh, in Spain, in Barcelona. The Swedish Embassy in Zimbabwe has joined other donor partners in availing aid toward climate change resilience, says the world struggles to contain natural disasters. Whilst the Swedish Embassy is donating for the first time towards the Zimbabwe Resilient Building Fund that started in 2016, the aid the aid will help communities for the next will help communities for the next three years. Currently, nearly 4 million Zimbabweans require food aid due to the recent El Nino drought and La Nina floods. We are therefore very excited to be partnering with the European Union, DFID, the UN and the Ministry in supporting the fund. And our contribution, our contribution amounts to 8 million US dollars over three years, which is one of our largest um, programs in Zimbabwe. Supporting this multi-donor fund represents an important important opportunity for Sweden to play a role in a highly organized, well-coordinated and forward-thinking endeavor, which builds on in- <coughs> intensive knowledge and data to make a real impact in terms of resilience building for the people of Zimbabwe. <coughs> Lastly, U.S. media reports say senior government officials have said President Donald Trump is poised to pull the country out of the Paris Climate Agreement. The American leader refused to reaffirm his country's commitment to the accord at a G7 summit in Italy on Saturday. He said he would make up his mind after returning to the U.S. Trump, who has called climate change a hoax on occasion, has reportedly indicated that this is still his position to key members of his inner circle. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinsi. Seventeen oh six Central African Time, thank you very much, Onele. A new law signed by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al Sisi imposing harsh restrictions on NGOs could be a death sentence for human rights groups operating in the North African country. This is according to the human rights organization Amnesty International. The organization says the severity of the restrictions imposed by the new law threaten to annihilate NGOs in the country at a time when authorities escalating crackdown on dissent makes their work more important than ever. The law, passed on Monday, requires foreign non-governmental groups to pay up to 16,500 US dollars to start working in Egypt and renew their permits on a regular basis. For more, here is Ahmed Mohammed, Egypt's researcher at Amnesty International. 
our point of view as Amnesty International that this law th- threatens the existence of the NGOs, particularly those NGOs covering the human rights violations in the country because it imposes many restrictions on the registration, seeking financial resources, doing field research, and in everything. Also, it gives unwarranted broad powers to security agencies to monitor the work of NGOs and to interfere in their work. On the other hand, it uh, grossly violates Egypt's constitution and Egypt's international obligations related to freedom of association. For example, the law enshrines many punishments up to five years in prisons for doing field research or doing the work of the NGOs or receiving a fund from international or national organizations without getting a permission from an administrative body comprises of many branches of the executive authority, including a representative for the Ministry of Defense, a representative for the Ministry of Interior, and a representative for the General Intelligence Agency. How many NGOs, non-governmental organizations, are operating in Egypt that will potentially be affected by this law? According to the statistics issued by the government itself, there are at least 47,000 organizations will be affected by this law. Among them, the organizations work on covering and exposing human rights violations in the country. All organizations, whether those work on development or human rights or social services, will have to adapt their legal status according to the new legislation. The law gives them one year to make this adjustment. So even the organizations licensed and had previous permission from the government will have to apply from the beginning and to go through a very complicated process of registration. And at the same time, it is not guaranteed whether they will be granted the license and the permission to work or not. Now, after the law was approved by Parliament in November 2016, Amnesty International called on President Sisi not to sign it due to what you said at the time as uh, its conflict with Egypt's constitution and international obligations. However, uh, the President went ahead and signed this uh, law. What response did you get when you expressed your concerns with the Egyptian authorities about about this uh, this legislation yeah ahead of publishing any news or any positions on the human rights situation in Egypt we send to the government in Egypt seeking their perspective on the issue but they never never respond at the same time they speak against the organization and not only Amnesty International but other international organizations in the media accusing international human rights organizations that they are publishing false information and trying to break the image of the government which is not true. What we are trying to do is just to deliver our recommendations to the government itself. But the government, unfortunately, never listen to any other voices. That is Ahmed Mohammed, Egypt researcher at Amnesty International on the line from Tunis in Tunisia, talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjarare.
International advocacy group Human Rights Watch and Article 19 Eastern Africa, a regional office that monitors and documents violations of freedom of expression, earlier today released a report which points out to abuses against journalists in Kenya reporting on sensitive issues. Their report, titled Not Worth the Risk, Threats to Freedom of Expression Ahead of Kenya's 2017 Elections, highlights separate incidents of what they say is a state-orchestrated intimidation of journalists. The organizations documented 17 separate incidents in which 23 journalists and bloggers were physically assaulted between 2013 and 2017 by government officials or individuals believed to be aligned to government officials. Two journalists, according to the report, died under circumstances that may have been related to their work. Selena Dobong reports. In their report, Human Rights Watch and Article 19 briefly touch on a spate of attacks on journalists between 2013 and 2017. The organizations say local and international journalists and media outlets in Kenya have come under pressure since Kenyatta assumed office in 2013. Article 19 recorded 38 incidents of attacks against journalists in 2014. By 2015, that figure had jumped to 65 recorded incidents including the murder of John Kituyi, the 62-year-old editor of the Mirror Weekly newspaper. Women, journalists and bloggers have not been spared. In 2015, an unidentified assailant, who some believe was a government security officer, physically assaulted a human rights and anti-corruption blogger, Florence Wanjerin Deru, leaving her with a serious injury to one eye. The attacker warned her against continuing with her blogs on corruption. Otieno Namwaya Human Rights Watch researcher elaborate. In our report, we found that uh, over the past five years, um, and also in the lead up to the elections, we have seen journalists being subjected to a range of abuses, uh, which include um, physical attacks, threats, uh, sometimes death threats. In some cases, uh, people being monitored physically or uh, online surveillance or, or, or phone surveillance. The media houses themselves have also faced um, pressure from the state, including the usage of government advertising to try and control the media and basically make the media to turn down. Namwaya says the evidence they gathered suggests that the underlying causes of post-election-related violence remain in place, and tension between government officials and journalists has escalated, with more reported attacks in the build-up to elections expected to be held in August. We were actually doing our pre-elections environment assessment, and one of the things that came out uh, came out very strongly was the the, the attacks or the threats to free expression ahead of the elections, as a factor that was going that was likely to undermine the elections, and uh, therefore we we did produce this report as a way of showing that actually in the absence of free expression, the elections are unlikely to be free and fair. The media and of course the the citizens, including the bloggers, did not be free to discuss some of these issues Jovial Randao, chairperson of the African Editors Forum, says Kenya's media freedom woes under President Uhuru Kenyatta's rule are not new to that country, referring to the signing into law of the contentious Kenya Information and Communication Amendment Act and the Media Council of Kenya Act in 2013. The laws expanded the government's control over media regulatory bodies such as the Communications Authority of Kenya, the Complaints Commission and the Multimedia Appeals 
Tribunal. Kenya has been a problem for quite a while where media freedom is not what it's supposed to be. What this points out uh, to us at the, at the African Editors Forum is this. Is, is, is that you know government control of the media is not a good idea because uh, when you have a government that is hostile to to the media, a government that is intolerant of, of criticism from the media, government then uses legislative and other means to try and and stifle the media. The African Editors Forum has been calling for the removal from statute books across the African continent of all laws that are inimical to media freedom. The organization say despite receiving formal complaints from journalists, police have rarely investigated the attacks or threats. They say there is no evidence that any state actor has in the past five years been held accountable for threatening, intimidating or physically attacking a journalist. They have called for the government to respect and uphold its obligations under international human rights law and voters' right to receive and obtain information at this critical time. Reporting for Channel Africa in Johannesburg, I am Selina Ndobong. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. It is info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Your time is 17.17 Central African time. Now, Angolan President Jose Eduardo dos Santos, who has been docked by reports of poor health, has returned back home after nearly a month in Spain. Dos Santos's medical condition has recently been subject to fierce speculation, with his daughter, Isabel, forced to deny rumors that he had died while in the European country. Angola authorities confirmed for the first time on Monday that Dos Santos, who has been the country's leader for the last 38 years, was in Spain for medical reasons. The opposition party for the oil-producing Southern African nation, UNITA, had previously called on government to reveal the state of Doshandosh's health after reports he was seriously ill in a hospital in Spain. More from Alcides Sakala, spokesperson for Angola's main opposition party, National Union for the Total Independence of Angola on President Doshandosh's return back home. Well, it's true that the president uh, is back home. There was a lot of rumor, you know, during his stay in Barcelona in Spain, more negative than positive. At that time, we have said that uh, it is important so that the, the Angolans know what was going on. Since he is the president of the country, I think Angolans must know what was happening at that time with the president. Lately, uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Mr. Chicotti, Mr. Chicotti has said recently, I think two days before his arrival in Luanda, the arrival of the president in Luanda, he said that the, med- the, the president was uh, in Spain for medical treatment. So he had confirmed indeed that the president was sick and in treatment in Spain, in Barcelona. Uh, just to describe the mood for us in Angola, Mr. Sakala, are ordinary Angolans happy now that the president is back home? Well, for the people in the majority, I think they need a change. Uh, people 
want a change. And for the criticism that we followed for the past three, four weeks, it shows that the Angolans are fed up with the system created by Mr. Luis Santos in, in our country. Angolans, Angolans need change in, in our policies. That's why the elections that we're going to have in August, they are really important because they can begin with a new page in the history of the country. Mr. Sakala, your party had previously called on the government to reveal the state of Dos Santos' health after reports that he was seriously ill in a hospital in Spain and an Angolan-related Facebook page went as far as saying that the president had died, but uh, this report was of course vehemently denied by his daughter, Isabel. Do you think this confirmation on Monday that the president was indeed in Spain for medical checkups came too little too late? Well, what we used to say that it is normal. If somebody is sick, we don't have to hide it, you know. And especially when uh, this person has uh, responsibilities as the president of the country. Uh, so now that he is back to the country, we wish him well since he is a human being and uh, it is useless to hide this kind of situation. Now, the country is now preparing for general elections uh, uh, to be held in August. As you rightly pointed out, uh, President Dos Santos has indicated that he will not contest these polls, which is set to mark a historic change in the country. How are the preparations going for these polls, uh, Mr. Sakala? We have found out so many irregularities in the process of organizing elections in the country. So there is a lot of irregularities. That's why the leadership of UNITA has decided uh, to uh, organize manifestations throughout the country, uh, beginning on Saturday, 3rd of June. So we are going to realize, to organize manifestations in Luanda, in all the provincial towns of our country so that we can protest with the the violations of the the electoral law by the National Electoral Commission. That is Alcide Sakala, spokesperson for Angola's main opposition party, National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, on the line from Luanda, talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Mujarere. Despite the ongoing threat of suicide bombing, life in Cameroon's devastated northern border with Nigeria is returning to normal with more schools reopening, trade resuming and even some roadwork getting underway. Channel Africa's Mokikinzaga travelled to the region and sent us this report. Hundreds of buyers and sellers have assembled at the Ngeli market near Cameroon's northern town of Ashigashia that straddles Cameroon and Nigeria. Police officer Jules Gondi says for the past one month, the weekly market has been receiving so many people from Cameroon and Nigeria. He says so many young pickpocketers are also back in the market stealing. He says they just arrested someone who stole ladies' handbags and money, and upon interrogation, 
discovered that they operate in groups and later share the booty. The village was deserted in 2016 when Boko Haram fighters attacked a nearby command post of the multinational joint task force, killing hundreds of villagers and half a dozen soldiers. Must schools and the markets were burned. In April this year, the government of Cameroon reconstructed the market. It also reconstructed schools like this one at Ngeli. <laughs> Hundreds of people have returned to the school. It was burned in 2016 by the insurgents. Boniface Bayola, Cameroon's Secretary of State for Secondary Education, was visiting the school when I arrived. Il y a une carence réelle de d'enseignants. Nous sommes plutôt rassurés que he says teachers who are still reluctant to resume work should be informed that peace has returned thanks to the implication of Cameroon's military, its people, and the country's president. He says he is visiting schools that were shut down due to the insurgency to encourage children with textbooks and financial assistance. Boniface says the 125 of the 170 schools sealed in former Boko Haram hotspots in Logon and Shari, Mayo Sava and Mayo Chanaga administrative units in far north Cameroon, which lies across the border from Nigeria's northeastern former heartland of Boko Haram, have been reopened. Tourism too is picking up. German-born John Sigma was visiting Cameroon's Waza National Park. Thanks to God and to the action of militaries and other uh, police forces and uh, the efforts that all the hotels and agencies and everything everybody made, we are seeing positive horizon in front of us. In 2015, Chad's military joined Cameroon and Nigeria in their struggle to crush the insurgents when the spillover of the war entered their territory. Border villages were also deserted. Chad's lawmaker, Teofil Yobembe, says activity is also picking up on their side of the border. Nous, parlementaires, au regard des actions menées sur le terrain, nous voudrons rassurer le peuple. He says Chadian lawmakers decided to visit deserted border localities to assure the people that peace has returned thanks to the implication of Chad, Cameroon and Nigeria's military and they can come back to their villages. He says they know that the enemy is not sleeping but that peace reigns on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria and all business persons can freely carry out activity in the area. The governor of far northern Cameroon, Mijiyawa Bakari, is however calling for vigilance. He says the terrorist group whose firepower has reduced drastically has orchestrated at least 20 suicide bombings since January this year. We cannot say that 100% we have security. You know how Boko Haram is operating. They are just see whether... You are sleeping and uh, they operate. Boko Haram has killed more than 25,000, according to the United Nations, displaced hundreds of thousands of people, attacked mosques, churches, palaces, homes, markets and schools, and kidnapped scores of girls and young women. The UNHCR reports that the Boko Haram insurgency in Nigeria and its spillover to neighboring Cameroon, Chad and Niger have caused the displacement of over 2.7 million people. Reporting for Channel Africa, 
This is Moki Kinzuka in Ashigashia, Northern Cameroon. Please send us your tweets. We are on Channel Africa 1. That is Channel Africa 1. You can engage us on any of the information that we have here on Channel Africa, the African perspective. You can also let us know about what's happening in your part of the African continent. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. It is time for news headlines. Here's on Lentzinti. The city's independent electoral commission says it is ready to deliver credible elections. The Swedish embassy in Zimbabwe has joined other donor partners in availing aid towards climate change resilience as the world struggles to contain natural disasters. And Angolan President Jose Eduardo de Santos, who has been dodged by reports of poor health, has returned back home after nearly a month in Spain. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Thank you very much, Onele. It is 17.30 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. The Global Water Partnerships and the South African Department of Water Affairs and Sanitation yesterday hosted the Valuing Water Regional Consultation at Birchwood Hotel east of Johannesburg.
Kuiri Chipangajara, Regional Chair of Global Water Partnership Southern Africa, says water is not a commodity and that people are only paying for the services provided to enable them to access this natural resource. We always argue that we do not sell water, but we are selling the services related to water supply. When we are subtaking water either from a river to a household, we have to invest money in the investigation, we have to invest money in the abstraction of water, in the pipeline, in the treatment, in the distribution. People are investing in that and they want to have a return on their investment. That is where the issue of cost is coming in. Okay, that is just a background to that. But at the same time, another question comes up, given the fact that there are people who cannot afford, how do we make it? And as, as we are saying, we want to make water accessible to people. How do we go about it? I think the answer to this is a question, how do we finance the investment in infrastructure to provide water? It is my contention that the highest cost is in the infrastructure. The second highest cost is in the operation maintenance, and then possibly reserve fund. By the same time also, that water, as we are trying to abstract, we must provide electricity. Someone else is supplying that electricity against the cost of electricity to pump that water out of the river to purify that one economy. That's another cost also. When a pipeline is laid over a vast country or piece of land, that land is owned by someone else. We have to buy that, purchase that land, it said, these are the investments that are coming in. But now the question comes up, how do we ensure that the people, say in the town, in the town we have the, the rich people, we have the informal settlement. But you also have on the outside the rural community. How do we then ensure that they get water? Because if they do not get water as they want it, or if you don't provide them with sanitation services, then we're having another problem of health. That's another issue. That is why I say actually we have to become creative here to come up with a workable financing model so as to make water accessible to people. I do not support free water. I somehow feel that the free water is a recipe for water wastage. Water must be for the services you are providing, that's operation maintenance. And a small investor for future investment, the people should be able to pay for this. Now, what is the role of the specific communities that this water is being served to? When a project is designed, or in many cases, the community are consulted. Say we are trying to take a pipeline from point A to point B. The population is this, we have schools of this and this, and the water will be used for, say, for domestic uses. They must be consulted, because we don't, cannot just build a pipeline supplying water or a purification scheme without consulting that. In some cases, people do that, which is a problem. That is why in some cases, a pipeline is constructed, people are rejecting it, or people are sabotaging the pipeline in order to get access water. Because in many cases, one of the failure, and it comes with the question that we ask, in terms of governance, we do not consult adequately. Now, who takes ownership of uh, that particular provision of water to those particular communities? Let's say they are a river line community who used to draw water from the river. Well, there are two things here. Let's talk about the river running from where to where, right? Let's keep in mind, if that river is running within a, in a country, that river can be cutting across certain provinces, like in South Africa. There are people upstream, there are people downstream, etc. 
in us abstracting the water and in us throwing back the airflow into the river, we had to be considered of these users. That's the trick part about it. But if, even if you are talking about the International River, for example, let's say the Kavango River, for example, originating in Angola, cutting through Namibia and then in the Botswana here. When Botswana is making decisions about what they are doing with the water coming there, they must keep in mind in terms of what's happening in Namibia, what are the needs. The same applies to Angola. These are the issues. That, but somehow, platform are created for people to discuss this issue who are members of the riparian states to discuss this issue and have some consensus. But there are enough guidelines, really, that are helping out the situation. But the dialogue is important. Now, I am saying dialogue is important because in the past, water supply has been a responsibility of that ministry of water supply, agriculture. Then, that's one. And then what next? After that, they will be talking to the local authority, municipality, in the rural area. But now we are seeing that it's becoming a cross-cutting measure. We cannot finance this infrastructure without Ministry of Finance to come on board. They must be there. We cannot finance this power supply infrastructure where we need the power to supply the water supply scheme without the energy minister coming on board. And we cannot do these projects without having had a discussion with the local authorities, the municipality who are getting the water. Meaning that we are talking about where in the past someone sit and do things, we need to consult continuously. So as everybody is on board and everybody takes ownership of the process from the very beginning. You mentioned that we don't believe in water being commodified. But now, if you look at the way in which in Africa people used to live a long time ago, I mean, they used to live in communal land whereby water used to be administered by the communities themselves. And uh, that changing of that particular system of uh, governance wasn't it the one that led now to people having to pay now for whatever services have been provided? The world is changing. In the past we have a community of households that have many communities that have 10 homes, for example. There was a, a borehole it was drilled or a pit. Things have changed now. People are having bigger equipped homes with running toilet, flushing toilet, etc. There are schools, etc. Some of these boreholes are not in a position to supply the people. There was Kuri Ichiba Ngajara, Regional Chair of Global Water Partnership Southern Africa, talking to Wandi Lekhalipa. The South African Medical Association, or SAMA, has called on all South Africans to observe World No Tobacco Day today and to support worldwide initiatives aimed at reducing smoking. According to the World Health Organization, the tobacco epidemic is one of the biggest public health threats the world has ever faced, killing more than 7 million people a year. More than 6 million of those deaths are the result of direct tobacco, while around 890,000 are the result of non-smokers being exposed to secondhand smoke. In our weekly look at health issues, we focus attention on the dangers of smoking with Professor Mark Sonderup, Vice Chairperson of SAMA. The 31st of May has been set aside as World No Tobacco Day, and I think this is a, a very important issue. Of course, it's not just about a single day, it's about the whole year, but it's a good point in time to just pause and to reflect on issues and we're talking about cigarette smoking. You know, I think it's important to note that we now are several decades 
after the conclusive findings of the link between cigarette smoking and a number of adverse health outcomes. You know, people may not remember that there was a time when people thought smoking was okay. There used to be adverts for certain brands of cigarettes that used to say, you know, why don't you smoke these? Even your doctor does. We really are a long time after that when the finding of a lot of work had to conclusively prove that, you know, smoking is bad for you. And really we face a situation where particularly countries in the developing world and in countries particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where you're finding that smoking rates in fact are on the increase rather than on the decrease. And that is very intentional. It's been intentionally manipulated that way by the tobacco companies because rates of smoking in the developed world are clearly declining and have been declining for a long time. What are some of the key determinants of smoking behavior, Professor? Why do people start smoking? Yeah, well, the reasons why people first start smoking are are numerous, but they come down to probably just a handful of reasons. And the one biggest one we have, of course, is peer pressure. Because it's typically young people who start smoking. It's experimentation and peer pressure in young people. And the one thing with smoking is smoking and the drugs that you inhale, namely the nicotine, is really, really highly addictive. And once you're hooked, you're hooked. And believe me, the tobacco companies know that. So you get in early through peer pressure and through experimentation of younger people. They try it for the first time and they're kind of hooked. And so if you want to channel your energies to try and intervene, you've got to focus on the youth. You've got to focus a consistent message that, A, it's not cool to smoke. It's actually not. People who smoke smell bad. And in fact, it's just not cool, okay? It may seem very cool, but it's not. In the week, there's been some criticism of advertising or sort of A-list celebrities who are posing for pictures with cigarettes in their hand. It's just not on. It's not on. It sends the wrong messaging because youth, you know, when you're young, you think, ah, it's cool to do these things. So you target your message and education towards the youth. That's really where you want to target your intervention and to try and prevent them from getting hooked in the first place. Because once you do that, the chances of them later taking up smoking start declining very rapidly. It's very unusual for an adult to start smoking for the first time. It's usually something people start in their late teens or early adulthood. Do you think that as a country, South Africa has done enough to prioritize and accelerate tobacco control efforts? Yeah, I mean, I think South Africa has been very progressive in that front. And I mean, the very first democratic government, the health minister, you'll recall, introduced very stringent tobacco legislation where we banned smoking in certain public areas. And we've consequent to that moved on to a number of other legislative interventions. And I don't know, but my sense in South Africa is we sort of got to a point where people kind of generally regard smoking as not being that great anymore. And in fact, you see people just knowing through social behavior that smoking in a public area is actually just not tolerated anymore. People must go and stand outside. That's the one thing. The next bit of legislation, which has been quite progressive, is then the packaging of cigarettes, the so-called non-branded packaging of cigarettes. And that is legislation that's already been introduced in a number of countries. Australia was the first country to do that in 2012. And what that is is that cigarettes no longer have a brand on front of them, but actually just pictures of people dying or unhealthy lungs or 
you know, people have had heart attacks and stuff like that, or throat cancer, and all those terrible things associated with smoking. And that's on the front of the packet with some unpleasant color. And that's quite progressive legislation. It probably has an impact. But of course, we need to just remind ourselves that products from outside of the country are being flooded onto the market, people buying cigarettes on the street. So it brings me again back to the point that if we're going to target, we've got great legislation, we are progressive, but we're going to target, we've got to target with a very consistent message. And maybe there we can be doing better as a country. We need to increase our messaging on our public news services, social media, etc., about the ills of smoking. Let's take a look at this year's theme, tobacco, a threat to development. How relevant is it to South Africa? Well, if we can finally get our economy back on track and we can see the benefits that we're gaining in terms of health outcomes, we are a country facing massive burdens of disease, four major burdens of disease. You know, one of those burdens of disease is what we call non-communicable diseases, and those include heart disease, lung disease, etc., etc. And smoking with its direct impact upon non-communicable disease, such as lung cancer, chronic lung disease, emphysema, really has an impact upon the country in terms of development because it's people in the prime of their lives who start getting sick and are no longer productive to the country and are able to actually contribute. And so it is a developmental issue because if you see in countries where there's a transition towards better living standards and better development, smoking rates, in fact, actually go down because the two go hand in hand as people become more socioeconomically advantaged and more educated, they so then turn away from bad habits because they simply have access to the information in terms of what this does to their health. So the two issues do go hand in hand, and it really is a threat to development. That is Professor Mark Sonderup, Vice Chairperson of the South African Medical Association, or SAMA, speaking to Elizabeth Redeja. It is 17.45 Central African time. Here's Wissane Matebula with your economics. Good evening, Spumelele. Thanks. Uh, Bartlays has received a regulatory approval for the sale of its remaining stake in its uh, Bartlays Africa group. South Africa's Finance Minister, Malusi Gigaba, approved the deal, paving the way for Bartlays to begin selling its remaining 50% stake in Bartlays Africa group. The Johannesburg-based APSA Bank is the main business inside Bartlays Africa group. Bartlays is also selling Bartlays Bank of Egypt and Bartlays Bank of Zimbabwe. The company's shares rose as much as 2.5% after the announcement. Meanwhile, South African Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba says he hopes that the swift action to oust Brian Malief as CEO of ESCOM will be seen in a positive light by the markets. He was speaking after an interministerial task team called on the ESCOM board to reverse Malief's reinstatement as CEO. Gigaba was speaking two days before ratings agency Moody's makes its announcement on South Africa's credit ratings following downgrades by two other agencies. It's caused government a lot of harm. Uh, a lot of reputational damage. It has caused the uh, ESCOM itself a lot of reputational damage. It has caused board members a lot of reputational damage. The Minister of Public Enterprises, the, the decision ought not to have been taken in the first instance. So we, we are taking this decision 
in the very best interests of the country, of the public, and in the very best interests of our state-owned companies as a whole. Uh, and, and hope that uh, the decision will be received well by the by the uh, bondholders. Kenya has launched a cargo train service along the Chinese-funded Standard Gauge Railway, one of uh, East Africa's biggest infrastructure projects in half a century. President Uhuru Kenyatta flagged off uh, the inaugural cargo train carrying 50 wagons from the port city of Mombasa. Kenyatta says this is a proud moment for every Kenyan citizen. Indeed, it is a very historic and proud moment, not just for me, but for every single Kenyan, as we begin to see our journey of transformation and change taking root. And Libya's national oil production has edged up to 794,000 barrels per day as it gradually recovers following a technical problem at Sharara oil field. Output was slightly up from 784,000 barrels per day on Monday. The National Oil Corporation chief Mustafa Sanala says he hopes production will rise this week above 800,000 barrels per day, a level it reached earlier this month for the first time since late 2014. And your financial indicators, the dollar is at 13.06, South African rands at 10.18, Botswana Pula at 9.23, Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities, gold $1,264, platinum $942 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil is uh, trading now at $51.33 per barrel. And that's your economic news for now. Thanks very much for signing some for your sports news. Good evening sports fans, I'm Tabison Tema with the latest sports update at this hour. We begin with cricket news. Protea star speedster Kahiso Rabada has replaced his teammate Imram Tahir as the world's top-ranked ODI bowler, Rabada moved up four places to take the number one spot after his impressive performance at Lords in the third ODI on Monday. The Proteas lost their three-match series against England 2-1, but Rabada's haul of 4 for 39 in the final match on Monday helped him finish the series with seven wickets. The 22-year-old Rabada is the youngest number one bowler since Pakistan, Salih Mushtaq, in 1998. Speaking at Lords ahead of South Africa's opening ICC Champions Trophy match against Sri Lanka, Rabada says he knows exactly what the wickets in England require. I think wherever you bowl, um, you still want to hit top of off. I guess uh, you know there's good bounce here, um, so you want to be a bit fuller. Whereas in India, a place like India where the ball squats, uh, hitting the top of the stumps is a bit shorter because it doesn't get up as much. So I think you want to be a bit fuller in between a half volley and short. So uh, that's the optimal length, and that optimal length changes on each wicket you play. 
Meanwhile, former Protea spin bowler Pat Simcox says there is no reason why the current South African team can break their long run in big events without a win when they compete in the ICC Champions Trophy. Simcox was part of the only Protea side to have ever won the ICC Champions Trophy. With the Proteas ranked number one team in the one-day international and one of the favorites to win the title this time around, Simcox feels they definitely have enough quality players to win the event. Well, let's start with England. I was disappointed that we didn't end up winning the series, uh, and, and I think they're good enough to have done that. Um, although, you know, in England it's not easy, and in May when we're not playing a lot of cricket domestically, and you're not in the groove of it, it's always been tough to go to England and play in anybody's side. Australia battled over the years, South Africa, the first couple of games, you really do battle. So I'm going to give them that. Although I think they were there long enough and they did prepare and today a lot of them have played in England. So that should be should be no reason, but I'll give them that. Um, they lost that the, the, the critical game. I just sensed they were a little bit overconfident there. They didn't button it down when they looked again at, and, and it got away from them. So uh, that was naughty of them. Going into the Champions Trophy, I think they're a good side. And I think they cover most of the bases. They've just got to get self-belief and momentum now. And I think that they, there's no reason why they can't win this tournament. The ICC Champions Trophy gets underway on Thursday with host England up against Bangladesh. South Africa's Proteas opened their account on Saturday against Sri Lanka. CEO of South African Rugby, Jury Rowe, says there will be more returns in investment for South Africa if it is awarded the 2023 Rugby World Cup. This after Rowe, His Excellency Athangene Cyprian Sikau, South African ambassador to Ireland, handed in the 227-page bid document detailing South Africa's compelling case to host the tournament. Rowe says he believes that the commercial model contained in the bid would be hard to bid, while 2.9 million tickets would be available. When we look at our bid, um, why we think we're superior, we basically got six points. We Stadium, unbelievable stadiums. Uh, by the time the World Cup happens in South Africa, they would be 13 or 14 years old. That is absolutely nothing in the lifetime of a, of, a, of a brand new stadium. So from a stadium and facility point of view, again, we're able to deliver. When we talk about profit, South Africa will sell all the tickets. We're a, we're a rugby nation. We'll be encompassed by, by a rugby World Cup for that period, and, and we're pretty sure with, with the influx of, of spectators and tourism that we'll be able to sell all of the tickets and make the most profit that any World Cup has ever made. Um, add to that the fact that we can produce anything at 50% of the cost. Unlike other mega sporting events, South Africa would profit from hosting the tournament due to existing world-class facilities. Ireland and France are also bidding and World Rugby is set to announce the successful applicant on the 15th of November later this year. Real Madrid star winger Gareth Bale is hoping to play in Saturday's UEFA Champions League final. Bale last played in April when he limped off the field with an injury during the El Clasico against Barcelona. One of the motivating reasons for Bale is that the final is played in his hometown Cardiff in Wales. I don't think you need an extra motivation to play in the Champions League final, but um, yeah, obviously it's special to be in my hometown where I grew up, where I... Uh, where I was born and um, yeah I will, that's ultimately why I've been working so hard double sessions every day to, to get my fitness back up and strengthen my injury and, and work on it let it heal a bit more as well so uh, yeah it's um, it'll be a special moment and even more special if we can win that's a spot at this hour stay tuned on Channel Africa for programming news and sports from an African perspective
This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. A new law signed by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi could be a death sentence for human rights groups. Angolan President Jose Eduardo dos Santos has been ducked by reports of poor health. In business news, Kenya has launched a cargo train service along the Chinese-funded Standard Gorge Railway. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Pumalele Zondi, producer Janine Kutzer, technical producer Wiseman Mangail, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, tweet us, channel Africa One, or SMS us, plus 27823325905. Africa, the African perspective. We leave you with a tiki by sense.